This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. Jason and I are back to analyze UFC 273 and preview Vicente Luque versus Bilal Muhammad 2. There's a lot to go over, so let's talk about the main event, where Alexander Volkanovsky finished Tansong Jung by fourth round ref stoppage. I think because of the criticism from the Ortega fight, Herb Dean was much more willing to stop the fight this time around. And someone in the Sapa chat said, training at Fight Ready improved zombie just enough to make him last for a longer beating and there's a lot of truth to that zombie said volkanovsky is like an insurmountable wall and that really does describe him but also it makes him hard to watch because unless he's fighting max holloway his fights are such maulings it's hard to stomach watching volkanovsky against jung really looked like fighters from two different levels so let's talk about volkanovsky Jason, what makes him so good and hard to beat? Well, the first thing I got to say is Volkanovski at 33 years old continues to improve. Yeah. And he was already, right? And he's already really good. So that constant improvement, that constant addition to an already well-rounded, super high-level game. I mean, at 33, he's, he's trickier now with setups and shifts, baiting his opponent, what? Well, having what I, I would consider the best vision of any striker in any division, uh, he sees things so well, and that includes Izzy. He sees things so well while he's moving, and he's cutting across center line, eyes on his opponent, and he's always had exceptional reaction time. But he seemed faster this fight. Like his, like his reflexes were just a tad quicker. And with all the other things considered, that, that's, that's pretty goddamn scary. He's got he's he's a killer who's getting better and better. And he's doing that against the Max Holloways of the world, the Ortegas of the world. And we all understand that a zombie can take a beating, but none of us wanted to see that kind of beating. And that's what we got. And that, that I think that tells the story of Alexander Volkanovsky. He just keeps getting better. Watching his fights, you wouldn't know that he had a reach disadvantage against almost everybody he faces. So it speaks a lot to his sense of range where he knows immediately when you're within his range to punch. And his opponents are always confused to when he's in range or not. Oh, yeah. And when it, he, he's doing that, well, breaking down that distance while cutting across center line. And he doesn't get hit as much as, as you would think as someone who fights with that kind of style. He's good at, at hand checking, baiting you to react to one side. He'll throw in kicks. He'll lower his level for takedowns. And that kind of, uh, you can call it later, layered, you can call it a, a multi pronged approach. He's just so good at identifying possible attacks that uh, he fights like a, a supercomputer with the, it, and, he's able, and he's able to pull that off against other great fighters. And that's the thing. When you have certain physical intangibles, you can look otherworldly, and then you get guys that are, are are also very good. Then you look it looks like, okay, all right, he looks human because he's it looks like he's fighting another human. 
he's fighting other outstanding athletes and he's making them look uh, pretty pedestrian. And that's it's pretty amazing if you think about it. Single shots in MMA striking is pretty common, I think, because of all the different variables in MMA. People are afraid to throw combinations because they're afraid to plant and then get taken down, right? But if you throw just single shots against Volkanovsky, he will fuck you up, right? Because once you throw that one, he'll get out of the way and hit you with three. So the typical type of MMA striking is like the worst thing to do against him. And then if you do try to throw combinations, and then that's when he goes for the takedown. So I don't know what the right answer is. Right, he'll absolutely fucking destroy you if you just throw one punch. If you throw a single jab and don't and don't retreat, where you don't put something behind it, he'll chew up your lead leg if you're in if you're in an orthodox stance. Um, and he's in an orthodox stance, so he'll chew it up. Or even if he's in a yeah, he'll, he'll hit that inside cut kick to a right hand. You can't throw one and done. And if you want to mix it up with him, uh, he's more than happy to engage. And he always finds, he'll break down that distance so well, even against longer fighters uh, who have a significant reach advantage. And he'll he'll have to shoot, he'll break down that distance so he'll have to shorten his own punches. He will have to change a trajectory and turn what should be a straight right or um, an overhand left into like this tight choppy punch, depending on what stance he's in at the time. and. To be able to have that coordination and that that sort of that that computing power in real time just tells you what it, where his physical tools are and how his mind muscle connection mind body connection relative to the other athletes in, in what is a stacked division just tells you how special his really is. It looked like he had fought Zombie like twelve times already because of how well. <laughs> He was reading him, right? Yeah, it looks like he was just sitting back, sweaty in the corner of the, the training room, watching watching him get ready every second of of zombies training camp because he picked up on everything from the jump. It wasn't it wasn't just one thing. It was whether it's the punches, whether it's the kicks. I'm not going to say that it, it was flawless because he got hit a little bit, but I mean it was certainly a one sided beating against someone who like zombie. When we talked about this the week before. Zombie can crack, so he usually keeps you honest. And even when when Bolt got hit, like he he shifted into wrestle mode and put him against the cage, and would would be more than happy to attack some takedowns, while uh, rather than let the Korean Zombie sort of get any kind of momentum. And that is smart, smart fighting while being an absolute mauler at the same time. And you don't you don't you don't you don't fucking see that. And makes martial arts like you should. And the, the the evolution of the game is that if you have those skills and you continue to develop them, which obviously Volganowski, we said it before, he's continuing to improve. Um, if you develop those, then against other fighters who have solid skill sets, but maybe not quite as comprehensive, uh, you can uh, you can do some do some things and and stand out if you have some of the other physical gifts that like Volkanovski has. There isn't much to analyze for Zombie because he offered up such little offense. You were just happy whenever he occasionally landed something. I was mad at his corner for letting him go out for the fourth. I was really just afraid Zombie might die because you also have to think of all the damage he's taken throughout his career. Now with all that said, even in his defeat, did you see zombies show anything against Volkanovski that another fighter might be able to exploit? Any openings against Volkanovski that a future opponent might be able to use? 
I saw nothing that you could exploit without opening up other options for Volkanovski. I mean, he, it, you, you could try to brawl him when he, when he does shift across center line. He's always busy with his hands, making sure that your eyes are accountable or, or, or picking up on something else. He doesn't do things random and sporadically. So you could say, oh, well, he, he, he does crash that distance and his head always comes across. Center line. All right, try to, try to throw an elbow. If you land, it might cut him, but he's just going to beat you to your hips and then ground and pound the living shit out of you. So, yes, that might work, but what does that lead to? And that's the, that's the difficulty in, I think, preparing for Volkanovski. If, if he takes you down, you saw the ground and pound he put on Ortega. That's what nightmares are fucking made of, man. Like that, you don't want that. So, I it, it's tough because I might not be giving it the, um, I guess, the proper analysis because I was I was like you, I was really concerned for Zombie's health, and even watching it a second time, um, I still had this, I don't know, aversion to the violence, which in the fight game you really can't. And I'm I'm just watching it, and I'm still thinking someone's got it. Third round, someone, wake up, stop this fight. Someone ended, someone ended. So much so that even though I'm watching it a second time, my dog's sitting next to me getting stressed out that I'm so fucking stressed out. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm not giving it the critical analysis um, and trying to determine Volkanovski's vulnerabilities in that fight, but he looked he looked really good. He looked really good. And I, I mean, anyone could be beating this game. And, and Max, I think Max tells you how good he is because of how close he kept it. Well, Max is the same thing. If he's not fighting Volkanovski, you're also afraid his opponent might die, right? It's hard to watch Max Holloway's fights because he mauls people and you're just like, just throwing the towel, right? Really? It is like that. And, and everyone knows how tough Ortega is. And then we can, we can go tangential and start talking about, not necessarily MMA math, but you see what, what Puye uh, did to Max and what, um, what Habib did to Poye. And there are levels to this thing and size matters and all sorts of things. But Volkanovski at 145 pounds, I think is undoubtedly the best fighter in the world. And I, I don't really think that there's much argument. And I mean, sure, everything's up for debate, but I mean, if you could supersize Volk, not that you could, um, he's who I'd want on my side no matter where I was going. <laughs> Now let's talk about Aljamain Sterling unifying the bantamweight title and beating Piotr Jan by decision. Since Jan was such a favorite, let's talk about what went wrong. How did he keep giving up his back off the takedown defense? That's actually kind of funny, right? Because statistically, Jan only only had his back taken twice out of a whole lot of takedown attempts. <laughs> That's true. So statistically, he didn't do that bad, but goddamn if Alger didn't make him pay for those two times, he made those two times count, and it was that, that Aljo Aljo did that. Um, the way he did it, I found particularly interesting. Instead of mirroring Yan's southpaw stance, um, you know, Aljo lined up lead leg to lead leg when he was the first takedown. Aljo, and then that snatch single, that single leg where his left leg is lined up with Yan's uh, right lead leg becomes that much closer and therefore that much easier to snatch and he was able to to finish that and wasn't so much what what i mean aljo does plenty right because he's super skilled in that position so again i'm going to put some respect on aljo's name 
but because he's an outstanding wrestler and you can do everything right and you can still take your fucking back. I mean, but at the, at the same time, it didn't help that Yan was trying, clubbed him with one like forearm right hand to the head and threw a second one that rotated Yan's hips and shoulder through, which threw, which threw Yan off balance. And when Yan went off balance, the takedown becomes that much easier for an expert uh, like, like Aljo. And, and, you know, those momentary laps of discipline and relative impatience, uh, I think, were, in, at least in the first two rounds, really part of the story of the fight. You mentioned how dangerous Sterling is on the ground in our previous episode where we were previewing this fight. Do you think he's the best ground specialist in bantamweight? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, his combination of wrestling and submission grappling might might very well earn him that title. And you add in the fact that he's so very strong, has a lengthy body type, and an incredible scrambling ability, and probably one of the the most uh, superb skill set that like that that you just really have a difficult time combating if he's able to pull it off is his back control so you know so i, I think it, it's really something special and it, he's he i said it he's a long body type and he does a lot of things well in, in the wrestling realm to where if you want to play that game with him i mean your best bet is to hope he tires because he's not gonna i mean someone's made a statement online that if if it were a if it were a street fight, well then, Jan would win all day. Well, I mean, if, if you don't count eye gouging, I mean, Alger takes your back and just pokes your eyes out. I mean, he just, or he just sits there until you die. You know, <laughs> I think it wasn't on air, but I think you told me in a conversation that you've grappled with Aljamain Sterling, and when he takes your back, you said. Even though you were much bigger than him, you're never getting that guy off. Yeah. He's just going to be on there until he wants to let go. No, you're not. And I'll say this uh, for a fact. I took him down quite a bit because um, I was 200 pounds and wrestled a little bit in college and I got a really good body lock. But he took my back once. And if he didn't let go, we'd still be there. <laughs> to this day, you'd still be there. <laughs> and I, I'm doing everything you're taught to do. I mean, you're starting to peel the boots. Then he's attacking with chokes. And... I'm thinking his legs are going to get tired, and they don't. He's just so good at controlling that position. His legs are very, very strong. So while I'm trying to hand fight his legs, while like simultaneously dropping my chin and peeling, I realized that I was really fatiguing my forearms from doing the hand fighting of his his arms and his wrists and his hands, um, and then trying to peel like control and then peel a foot and scoot my hips, and I couldn't. I just I couldn't, and. You know, I'm not, I'm not Peter Young, so, um, but still, I, I, I felt that, and I've, I've had other good grapplers um, that were much bigger than Aljo on my back, and he felt as, as strong, as tight, and as controlled as any of them, if not more so. Now, how much do you think being in a body triangle for basically two rounds sapped Young's energy? A lot, a lot. Um, if you take a look at the the second round, he spent I forget how much time on on Jan's back, but the the second takedown of the fight in the third round, after being backpacked for the majority of the the second round, Jan looked tired, and his footwork was all over the place. It really was, and 
Like Jan's a five round fighter and he's a dynamic fighter with a lot of forward pressure, but that grappling in that position, just like I, just like I said, for me, it felt like my, my wrists and my legs and my hips and everything were, cause I had to control the hands, worry about the choke. I was trying to fight his legs and his feet. Everything sort of wore me down. And when we went back to our feet and we started to wrestle live against the fence again or against the cage again, I was worse for the wear. I was tired. I was worn down. And I, th- I think if you watch that that second takedown, the one that happened in the third round, uh, and pay attention to just how, for Jan, who traditionally has very disciplined footwork, he was all over the place. You know, and it wasn't like, oh, Jan, Jan got tired. It was Aljo gassed him out with a back trip, backpack control the prior round. And it was Aljo's combination of striking and wrestling while fainting both options that had Jan walking backwards, crossing his feet. And I've made fun of other fighters for it. So Jan doesn't get a pass. But Jan doesn't do it like first first round right off the bat. Uh, Aljo brought that out. of him. And so for all the Aljo haters, I mean, Aljo did that. Whether his camp had that in mind, I don't know. Uh, but... Aljo was able to, to pull that off, and to to this point in time, no one else was ever to solve that was it able to solve that puzzle. Now you mentioned to me while we were watching the fight that being winded from fighting off Sterling's back attacks is why Jan was fighting rounds four and five on the ground and on top. Do you think part of that was also if he's on the ground and on top, then Sterling can't take him down and then take his back again? It was like a conservative way to just not end up there again. Yeah, certainly. It also wears on Aljo's conditioning, which which you want because wrestling is harder when you're tired. Um, and but also Jan didn't have to worry about his own sloppy footwork. Which if if Aljo's gassed in front of you, but you stumble, he's taking your back, and then we're gonna all get some chips while he just backpacks you for the next two and a half <laughs> minutes. Like that, that's gonna happen. So I think he realized that he couldn't fight angry and aggressive with that. It wasn't overly aggressive, but it wasn't as, as disciplined this time around. You know, the, and part of that was also Aljo's game plan. It was pretty straightforward, I think. You know, impatience and some momentary lapses uh, of discipline, but they, they were born of uh, Aljo's game plan. You know, even though Aljo was content to, to, to play the perimeter, Jan was content to stalk, whether it thought it looked badass or because he was indeed pissed off at Aljo but you know rather than just committing to the center of the cage pointing and then putting some onus on Aljo to come back to the center the first round he just slid 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 followed and it, it looked like he was doing a good job of cutting off the cage against Aljo but because you can't break down that distance knowing that Aljo is going to drop and then uh, he'll take that drop step and bait you in, and then he'll take you down. So I think I think Jan was a little more conservative there. There, and the the feints that Jan is usually so effective with, they weren't so effective because Aljo was really content at keeping the fight at a ridiculous distance until he threw some threw some kicks every once in a while, and then I think uh, I think Jan got a little hasty, he got a little impatient, but. I think that team's pulled off too many marquee upsets against too many giants to think that it's just dumb luck. It, it was obviously some attempted strategy, I believe. 
So piggybacking off of that, then, do you think Sterling's camp saw that how Yang gets out of single legs is by turning away from it and they saw an opportunity in that? Maybe not that he would do it every time, but they just needed him to do it just once. And they already had a bunch of setups for that. Because in the lead up, Sterling said in several interviews, he needs Jan to just screw up once and he'll take his back. He didn't say he'll knock him out. He didn't say he'll finish him with ground and pound. He specifically said, take his back. Yeah, well, I would, I would urge anyone to go back and look at that first takedown rather than defend. And you're right. And then Aljo's right. All he needs is one opportunity. And when, when Aljo is wrestling, and that's when Aljo hit that nice, or he didn't mirror his opponent's stance. He stayed in the opposite stance and lined up lead leg for lead leg and threw a right hand that connected and then cut that snatch single. And Jan decided that it was a smart move to try to punch him twice with the right hand instead of starting to fight hands, peel him up so that even if, if Aljo was able to get the takedown, he could immediately. I know he, what he was trying to do he was probably trying to, to kick and limp leg out and create some distance. But in doing so, like, Aljo was still pretty fresh. And I think that brings up another point. Is Remember when we talked about is, will the, the Longo camp have Aljo all spammy and active in the first round, thinking that that really won them the first round? And I think they were calculated. They didn't. And like, the, the, it looked like maybe the calves and the 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 lower body of Jan was starting to slow down a little bit before before Aljo because Jan had the anticipation of the takedown and that had him a I don't know a little more stressed and it looked like Aljo was just able to sort of scoot and just big brother him on big brother himself onto Jan's back in that second round. Now, how much of the way Jan limp legs out of single legs is from learning how to wrestle? for MMA, meaning without shoes. Because I've seen MMA wrestling coaches make their fighters put on wrestling shoes for wrestling practice, even though it's for MMA because they want them to learn how to get out the proper way instead of just learning how to just rely on sweat and athleticism and just yanking that leg out, right? Just in case there's somebody who's really good at that. So how much do you think it's that, learning how to wrestle with bare feet? Some of the things that you do in, in MMA obviously are different than in, in wrestling, but that, that sort of limp leg where you take that C grip, that, that dog collar grip on the back of your opponent's neck, shove his head and kick away is sort of an MMA and submission grappling go-to. There's not much wrong with that. Does that make you a little bit more at risk to turn more belly down against someone like Aljo? Yeah, but I think uh, Jan's wrestling defense has always been it's it's worked for him and i i don't think it was necessarily a problem maybe kicking out i'd have to watch the video again but i don't know if he ran out of room i know the cage was close um maybe he kicks a little bit further and maybe he tries another another uh double limp leg with like a leap a little bit further and farther without the the cage being in his way or i i don't know i'd have to look again but i don't think there was too much wrong with the way that he does stuff. Um, that being said, against someone who has like, what we said, a special ability like Aljo, you have to be as close to perfect as possible in those areas. So when it comes time to fight the hands, when it comes time to to see grip or dog collar the, the neck, 
you can't like start clubbing and punching and thinking like you can give one up to Aljo. Um, and at times, the lapse in discipline, I think, came from uh, also a lack of respect for Aljamain Sterling. And like I said, me, most of the people on Twitter, and Piotr Jan should put some respect on, on Aljamain Sterling's name. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Marcos Damada, who is a great coach from American Top Team, told him after round two, stop turning your back, stop trying to limp leg, fight his hands, fight his wrists, and don't turn away, right? He told him that. And then round three starts, gets in a single leg position, and he does the same thing. He tries to limp leg and turns away and gets his back taken again. So we did see people in his corner warning him not to do that. And something you picked up on is stop trying to hit him just fight his hands, right? You texted me that in the middle of the second round. And so his corner saw that, or at least one member of his corner saw that. And he started implementing that more in rounds four and five. Yeah. And I, I also think that, that it goes back to what you said, that if he does club him in the head, well, then he's sort of turning into that, that limp leg position. So he doesn't feel like it's that problematic. So yeah, I think there might be um, a tendency for him to do that. But if he's... Um, <laughs> Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But again, I think it goes to maybe giving Aljamain a little more respect than, and this, this is coming not from you saying you do, but I do, rather than uh, Jan like messing up. And maybe, I think probably Jan does everything right, doesn't club the head, and probably still gets taken down there. I think the, the, the lead leg versus lead leg was a nice little wrinkle. He threw a nice right hand that landed. It, he seemed to have uh, the ability to keep Jan guessing, and Jan was guessing wrong. And that second round, I think, changed everything. I think it really did. Some of the things that, that would work, and it's, that's why it's tough being a corner, man, because whenever you might be saying all the right things, and the fighter might go, yeah, I, but normally this shit works for me when I'm not fucking tired. And I'm really tired. And not every athlete wants to admit that. Not every coach wants to ask that. So, you know, the, there's a lot of variables. And it's, it's really tough to, to Monday morning quarterback. But we do it. And that's why it's so fun. Because, like, all right, now there's another puzzle to solve. And, and how do you do it? How do you do it? Imagine if Aljo takes his back the next time they fight, like, six times. Because every time, Jan gets out of it. I don't think that's going to happen, mind you. But what if it did? <laughs> you know, so some interesting things to play. And if uh, you know, and I was just a very, very smart, very, very good-looking man once said, "If you have a bigger, better, badder man in front of you, then fuck Dana White and fuck the fans. Right? <laughs> Your job is to win, and that's what Aljamain Sterling did. So everybody on Twitter should probably fuck off. He did his job." And he did it well. And the same people that want to say, well, he didn't do anything in the first round. Well, then the judges could have given it to Jan. And if they did, we would have faulted Aljamain for it. But they didn't. 
but you refuse to credit Aljamain for it. And I find that hypocrisy unfucking bearable in MMA. Right? And I, I was the, I think I gave Aljamain like a 10% chance to win on the last show. But again, to quote, I guess that's me, the good looking man. Um, <laughs> fuck Dana White, fuck the fans. He did what he needed to do to win against uh, a really, really tough task in uh, Piotr Young. Now, Jan, we spoke about how conservative he was after being dominated for two rounds, which makes sense. He needed to recover. He needed to bank some rounds. But a lot of people now in hindsight can fault him and think, you know, you should have just kept the standing and try to finish him, try to knock him out and so forth. But if he did stay standing and didn't finish out the rounds on top, what do you think the chances are then that eventually Sterling would have taken him down and taken us back again? I would almost guarantee it. I would almost guarantee it. Because Jan's reaction time had slowed. He was he was fatigued. He was very, very fatigued. And that those two rounds, they, oh, you don't decide, hey, I, I one of those might be a 10-8. I'm just going to go conservative here. He, if you put him on a polygraph and ask him, how, ti- how tired were you in that fourth round? He would be, he'd be lying or just self-deluded if he'd say anything other than incredibly fatigued. But he fought smart and calculated being that fatigued. And he was still still relatively dangerous. But take a look at the third round. And I know Aljamain hits him with a left hook and then faints uh, like faints a single leg. And then he brings his hips back. And Aljamain comes back up. And then when, when Jan follows, uh, Aljamain baits, whether he baits or not, can be debated, but um, draws out a straight left hand from Jan. Jan throws it, and Jan takes a, a lunging left foot step, left step, his power foot, his rear foot, and he walks that foot in, and Aljo just sees it, drops his level, and gets a nice, easy single leg. And he worked for it a little bit, but he did that little step around, um, almost like a golf, um, uh, a treetop or a golf swing finish. But he gets the takedown, and he, he finishes on, on top, takes the back and solidifies another round, adding more fatigue, poking another hole into Jan's gas tank. And you know, that's those things are not easy things to do. So whether it's a singular skill or not, he does it so well that uh against the best in the world he was able to do it for almost ten goddamn minutes. I think he did actually the smartest thing he could have done to actually have a chance of winning because you know, there was a possibility he lost the first round. And on top of that, one of those two rounds could have been a 10-8. So he could have really lost badly, right? So it's all kind of up in the air, hoping the judges didn't give any of those 10-8. And then maybe you won that first round. So now fighting this conservative way puts you in that position where you're hoping by luck that the judges gave it to you. But if you look at all the different scenarios of winning, Jan had one way of winning, which is the one I just described, whereas Aljo had more than one way of winning, right? Because he could have also had a 10-8 two rounds, actually, right? He could have had 10-8 for two rounds. He could have had a 10-8 for one of those two. He could have had no 10-8s and just won the first. So the variety of ways that Aljamain Sterling could have win were multiple. Jan really had one way to succeed. And so he put himself in that position where he could win in that one way and it just didn't work out that way, but he still lost by split decision. So he made it close. I think even in losing, despite even 
doing the boneheaded decision in the last fight of the illegal knee, he showed good fight IQ after being sapped for two rounds, in my opinion. No, I agree. And most most keyboard warriors and just bleed badass is going to say, well, you go out on your shield, go up, throwing bombs, try to take his head off. Would have gotten taken down. <laughs> he would have, yeah, exactly. Even if he would have hit, he was so, he was, there was significant fatigue and there wasn't a ton of pop on his punches. He would have, like, even if he hit Aljo and he rocked Aljo, he was punching himself out of position by round three. And if he did that, even a, a dazed Aljo probably would have just beat him to his hips and then recovered while he took his back for the next three minutes. So it, it was, I think it was a, uh, a better approach, believing that the, the first round was close enough to have gone to him. And I could see it going towards to Jan. I could also see it going to Aljo. But I, I, I think it would be ridiculous to think that either one of them definitely deserved it. Those rounds should be reserved for 10-10. That's a whole other argument for a whole other show. But um, I think that uh, you want fighters to really pick it up and score all those round 10-10s. And when they have five draws on their record and a lot of fucking booze, then you can say, hey, you need to pick up the pace and separate yourself for these rounds. If you, if one person, I forget the fight metrics, I saw one of them said Aljo landed 10 significant strikes and um, 7 for Jan. I saw another one that was like 13 and 6. Well, or not significant strikes, like total landed and, or whatever it was. But if, if we're in the single digits or they're less than 20 combined, well, let's be honest, both men should probably pick it up a little bit or it's a 10 10. Now, I don't think you have to fight that way, but I don't think you should be complaining about a loss if you did the dance and it plays out that way. So, you know, you, you, and I said it before for Aljo, if you chose to fight that way and you lost by a split decision because you were conservative in the first, you get the blame. If you win that way, you get the credit. So to, to do anything else is disingenuous, lacks logic, and just fucking wholly hypocritical. Now, in our preview, we definitely favored Jan, just like all the gamblers did. But now, because of what we saw in this fight, despite even if you think Jan won, right, you can't be that sure anymore in their third fight. Because just as likely as it is for Jan to win by decision or KO, it's also likely that next time, Aljamain doesn't just take his back, he also finishes him. Or he just keeps taking his back and wins by decision that way too. Now we know Sterling can do that. Yeah, I mean, and I think Jan has to approach a rematch as if Sterling is a world-class professional fighter because he is. And yeah, you, you were dominating aspects of that first fight, but when you approach someone uh, as if they don't pose any problems, don't see, be surprised when they fucking do. You know? And and he, he didn't. He just kept trying to walk him down, kept trying to walk him down. And even when in the first round when he was cutting cutting him off, he wasn't truly cutting him off. He was sort of just sliding and following and letting Aljo because he couldn't. He couldn't overcommit to breaking down that distance because of the takedown threat. So he looked a little bit stiffer. He didn't look, he didn't look crisp and fast. And he was loading up like he was a little bit pissed off. And, you know, none of those things bode well for cardio, though I think I think Jan's cardio was good enough to work through um, some of that stuff. But after being backpacked and uh, the, the footwork falling apart, it definitely had some issues later on. And I'll say it again, that was born of Aljamain Sterling and his game plan for this fight. 
Actually, this is a good segue then because some of these topics are going to come up again in our next fight. Hamza Chimaev beating Gilbert Burns by decision. This one was unanimous, but it was another fight that was actually very, very close. This was the hardest to predict when we were doing our preview because we didn't know anything. Now we know a lot. Jason, tell me what you liked from Chimaev's performance and what you didn't like. What I did like is how hard he hits. He's a, he's a, he's a hard puncher. And his ability to persevere through some adversity because he got, he got lunchboxed quite a few times by Burns. What I didn't like is Hamzat has zero, I mean, zero defense from the southpaw position. Doesn't exist. He's just used to overwhelming people there and he's, he's not fundamentally sound defensively there one bit. Um, and when you're fighting someone as short as Burns and as tall as you are, you don't recognize that like those looping overhands um, might be what are coming. Um, and you give him the foot position. If you punch yourself out of position because you're over-aggressive, well, I guess we found out that Hamzad has a bit of a chin because <laughs> he ran into a lot of them. Um, and he still stay, stayed pretty tough and uh, put on what was one of the more exciting fights I've seen in a long time, if not one of the more defensively negligent. (laughs) Some things I was impressed with as far as Hamzat Shemaev was his ability to walk his opponents down and against the fence. We've seen this in every one of his fights. He also has a granite chin, which you mentioned, and good power. But what I didn't like was how he would taunt only to get hit. If you're going to taunt, then you got to use that to draw something and then hit them back. You're not supposed to taunt and get hit, right? Not with three right hands in a row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also him trying to muscle things. I didn't like that because he kept trying to muscle things and then he would get tired. Oh, for sure. And that, that the segue I think you're referring to is fighting another human being who's world-class in front of you like they're not world-class. Yes. Right? That That's the segue I'm getting because you're not going to bully Gilbert Burns. And yes, you've had success and you've beaten some really good people. But like, you were able to show off your skills by doing shit the right way. And maybe that the, the knockdown that you had comes to show itself again if you start with a little bit more consideration and respect for what your opponent brings rather than thinking that the things that got you there um, are necessary. You know, let, them, let them look at some wrestling from time to time. And not every shot attempt has to be taken to completion. But it can keep them guessing. It can keep them concerned. It can keep them, you know, flinching up and down, up and down. Your level change and your feints start working for you instead instead of just being random shit that looks good to people in the stands who can't tell the difference. So, you know, a little bring in more strategy. Bring in an A game is going to be really, really important. What I'm super impressed by by Hamzat is that he fought sort of like an asshole, and he still beat Gilbert Burns. I was going to say that. I couldn't tell what his game plan was. He kept fucking up, but he still beat the number two guy. Yeah, he did. It was a really fun fight. And you could, uh, I, I keep hearing people say Burns exposed Hamzat. I'm like, do you understand how good Gilbert Burns is? Do you understand Burns is he could be world champion if, if it wasn't for the, the just odd ability for Kamara Usman to just stand up after getting another guy who gets a lunchbox and just decides, hey, I'm okay. 
right? He just stands up and says, hey, let's do this. And then eventually wins by KO himself, TKO. Um, so you got Gilbert Burns in front of you. You got to fight like you have Gilbert Burns in front of you. And then you're going to hear, well, that's what got him there. Well, this it's not an easy sport. And there are the, the more time you have in the cage, the more you'll start to understand that there is like, like what is entertaining, what fights the hubris in your brand, and what works well as a fighter. And if you want some longevity in this sport, um, and you want you want to go on a run, imagine if hey, imagine if Hamza beats everybody, but his next three fights—I mean, he becomes world champion in three more fights. Hell, let's say two, but the next two are against. Kobe and then Usman, and they look like the Gilbert Burns fight, and they all go the distance. How long do you think his career would be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and honestly, I don't think Covington uh, hits that hard. But if you gas against Covington, he'll hit you a thousand times. So, like those are things to consider. And yeah, I mean, everyone wants to pat him on the back or or uh, cast aspersions because he looked vulnerable against Burns. But let's just say an ex- exceptionally good and bad performance from Mamza. Now, in a text message where we were going back and forth, you mentioned that Shimaev looks like he has composure, but he doesn't. Can you explain that? Strategy and strategic considerations are born of composure. Doing what you innately uh, are, are programmed to do that is incorrect is a lack of composure. Doing that in a calm demeanor <laughs> with with like some the appearance of presence is not composure. Going back to an educated jab and maybe le- having uh, having Burns miss big and then coming back with a counter right hand is composure. Gassing yourself out because you're wild, but continuing <laughs> to person right, but continuing to persevere and just looking stoic while doing it doesn't mean you're composed. Not being lack of panic doesn't necessarily mean composure. You know, he was still wild and he stayed wild when normally he's when he finds that first big shot, it's always because he's it's as far as I've seen, it's been because he's been somewhat measured. Yes, aggressive, but measured. And I think that degree of of being measured, it should should go hand in hand with our definition of composure. Um and in that situation, in very few situations, after the first round, did I feel like I saw much composure at a Hamzat. And I think in order to in order to maintain at the the highest levels of this game against some you know, some pretty decent 170 pounders, he's going to need that rather than because if, if it was going five, then he was probably out of there in four. I got news for everybody: if it was going five, he was probably out of there four. So he was punching himself all over the place. He was wild and he was tired. And he got clipped and rocked hard to the point where when I think when Burns when he pushed Burns, I think he was half awake while he was laying on him at the end of that round. Conor McGregor is not known as a humble fighter, but oddly, he had a very poignant observation after he fought Floyd Mayweather, which was that in fighting him, he really learned what composure meant because McGregor thought he had composure, but what he had was confidence, right? That he could knock this dude out. Whereas he saw that Floyd has something different. He was composed. 
meaning he knew constantly what were the right things to do, what were the right decisions to make. They both had confidence, but he was distinguishing confidence from composure. So I think Chimaev has all the confidence in the world. But to your point, right, composure, that ability to think quickly on your feet and make all the right decisions and not fight like a person with their hair on fire, right? Like Volkanovsky. Volkanovsky has composure, right? Somebody like him, after he gets clocked one good, he maintains his composure and his IQ in the fight game goes up even higher and then he demolishes his opponent, right? So I think that's a good contrast between Chmaev and Volkanovsky. Confidence versus composure. Oh, for, for sure. I mean, ton of, both of them have a ton of offensive output. And when I say perseverance is one thing. I mean, being able to push even wildly while, while you're fatigued, hey, that's, it's a tough thing to do. But composure is a little bit different. Where are the fighter's eyes and where are his fists? I mean, are, it, are, are his fists in the air and his eyes are looking at the ground? That's, that tells me that this fighter is probably a little less composed than he should be. That is born of fatigue um, and, and anxiety. Like, I'm tired. I need to do this and I need to do it hard. Well, yes, you do. But sometimes a little pivot, a little step to the side, a deep breath, they let them come forward and then find that same thing with your eyes on the prize, your eyes on your opponent, setting those things up, calculated. And when's the last time you've ever seen, I mean, you don't see Floyd Mayweather land a lucky punch because everything is precise and calculated. He's got the best eyes in the game by far in boxing, probably the best eyes ever. Saw everything, saw, sees everything. Uh, so so I, I think it's a very apt example. Uh, and it, it really, really means something when you can, when you can simultaneously have a goldfish brain where you just see it, it happens, it sucked, you forget about it. But an elephant's memory where you, hey, you remember it anyway, just so you have it like back in the back of the hard drive so you can com- compute later and then exploit what happened rather than have it happen again. You know, it's great to be able to forget about it, move on, but still have it, still being able to tap into it so that you can counter, so that you can bait, so that you can set up. I don't know if you're getting clipped with the right hand over and over. You don't just fear the right hand. You counter the right hand or you duck and double the right hand. So um, I think that ability to make those decisions is really born of composure. And I know not every fighter is an intellectual fighter, and that's fine. But I think the risk-reward in terms of fighting that way, like you're going to get it. He's very young into his career. You don't want too many of those in a row. It's kind of the mindset that you see when people are trying to finish out a workout, right? They attack a workout. So their form falls apart, but their intensity increases for the last leg of a workout. You know, you see this a lot in video footage of MMA fighters during a hard workout where they give that final push to end the workout and, you know, they're on a bike or whatever the hell they're on and their form looks like shit. They're completely bent over. They're huffing and puffing. Their posture's not good, but they're just going all out harder than they went even at the beginning of the workout, right? And they're just trying to finish it out. They're attacking that workout, right? And there's a certain toughness to that, but that's still different from fight composure. And I think a lot of times you see MMA fighters take that mindset that they created for themselves in a workout and they apply it to fighting and they just go out there and it looks like that, right? It looks like poor form, 
poor posture. And so there's a certain grit to that. You know, there's a certain confidence in that. There's a certain toughness in that. But that's still not the same as composure, right? Where you know the task at hand and you're still watching and you're still looking and you're still reacting the right way. And so I think a lot of fighters fight like it's a workout and they attack it with the same mentality as they attack a workout versus treating this like a fight against somebody who is world class to a point you always like to make. Perfectly stated, right? You want to amplify your own mistakes? Do them (laughs) at a thousand percent, right? Do it as hard as you possibly can with poor form. The workout is not going to hit you back, right? The bike is not going to hit you back. Absolutely. So the questions you need to ask yourself, like uh, I had a, a history teacher that said, was the industrial revolution, industrial revolution good? The question is, for whom, right? Or uh, is benching 400 pounds as a 145-pound fighter good? But what? I got it. I benched 405 pounds, but I, I tore my labrum. Uh, then it's not good. <laughs> so, so cause and effect, but what? Where does it go? What is it going to give you? And the, I think your explanation of those events is the difference between someone like Volkanovski who has probably the highest output in the game while maintaining the most disciplined and layered and complex approach to fighting offensive and defensively. That's, that's, there's beauty in that, especially if you know what you're seeing. There's a lot of fun in what Hamza and Gilbert Burns did. But, you know, you give me a bunch of college wrestlers and a ton of roids and a little bit of LSD, and we can probably get a similar result. <laughs> <laughs> Now, do you think Burns exposed any weaknesses in Chmaev's game? And I have to mention, Burns did take this fight on short notice as well. Uh, you can bait him into a brawl. Burns was able to nullify his uh, uh, Hamzat's reach advantage. He was able to get it, lure, lure him into a brawl and punch up hill pretty well without losing much power um, because Hamzat's head is all over the place. When Hamzat hurts you, he'll throw us like, like these choppy punches. Where like his elbow is down and like you can just punch through that V and catch him right on the chin. He's so exposed. Chimaev was throwing, I think if I remember these uh hammer fists while standing. Yeah, it looked like he's throwing like throwing stars, right? He's like, eh, eh. His form went out the window. I'm like, what what are you doing? Yes, you hit hard, but do you understand that there is no defense? Your your shoulder is below your chin, your elbow is is below your pectoralis minor, and like your you punch on the V, you're going to get clipped. And like Burns was punching uphill and always catching him in those vulnerable positions where he, there was a, a, just a fundamental lapse in defense. Yeah, he hits hard, but there's there's more to it than that. Um, and if you continue to fight that way against some evolving sport that's improving, that fighting like that, if your skills ever decline, you will you'll crash and burn pretty quickly. If you if you have some just real outlying physical gifts, then then yeah, you can you can you can do some things, even if you do them incorrectly. But like, an adherence towards fundamentals is very important, and I think uh, I think Burns was able to to demonstrate that Hamzat has some. I don't want to say maturity, like he, he's an immature guy, but his fighting style is still immature. He hasn't tightened up aspects of it for like. A, a mature, coalesced approach to, to offense and defense without just throwing caution to the wind and saying, fuck it, I can take a shot. If you love the Southpaw Project, 
please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. Now, what do you think about Shimaev's wrestling for MMA now that you've seen more of it? I know how Goldrose thinks of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> which, which isn't much, but uh, and everything Goldrose says is absolutely on point. But what he, what he, what he, and I think he does realize it. But he's just he is what intelligently and logically, not necessarily trolling, but he's just like hammering a point that, that it's not a wrestling match. I think Hamzat is incredibly strong he was able to just sort of bully around burns in that first round grappling grappling wise too and burns had this holy shit look on his face like jesus man i do hope this dude gets tired <laughs> which he did <laughs> right and, and, and he probably will when when faced with 15 minutes of that kind of pace and probably why you didn't see him go back to it all that much but i think um his his wrestling because of his grip, because of how strong he is, because of his ability to lift, is really, really impressive for wrestling, for MMA. And I just want to shout out to Gold Rosen, 100%. I, I follow those threads all the time, and I don't comment because I don't, I, don't, I don't want to debate it. But for, for mixed martial arts, Hamzat has some good stuff. And, you know, like, strength is important in MMA, and, and he's got that in spades. But... Where if you if you try to wrestle like that, even in MMA, it, you need you need a gas tank, or you know you start it starts to drain you. And we had this discussion on on earlier shows where the energy systems for aerobic versus anaerobic and how one shoots apt. You try to do something with precision and form after you've already lifted and thrown multiple times, you're missing. You're not as precise. And I think. If Hamzat has more composure, I think if he's a little tighter, a little, little more calculated, then I think, I think he's got the goods to KO Burns. I really do. But I think fighting Burns like he's not a problem is why he wasn't able to and why he very well could have lost that fight. Do you think Chimaev is still in a pretty good spot as far as where he is in his MMA development? I do. 11 fights in. I can't think of, of any any better clay to mold a world champion you know, at 170 pounds he hits hard <sighs> he could take a shot but I mean, what would we say he was 27 i believe yeah i think he's very moldable clay that there are some some good things if if um he isn't too eager to please the fans if he doesn't buy into his own maniacal hype about what a killing machine he is if he tries to be a great fighting machine instead of an otherworldly killing machine, um, he's going to have a few knockouts on his record going against him that he's going to have to come back from to tell us like, how much perseverance he really has as opposed to like how how many people can you line up and he can knock down. So it, it'll be um, it'll be fun to see how it plays out, but he's got the goods. He just needs to dial it in. And I think uh, I think that Burns fight probably has him realizing that what do you think he needs to improve on before he main events a five-round fight night fight uh pace for sure 
Um, going out there chasing a knockout just to get tired uh, is a fool's errand. It'll cost him. And then everyone will say, well, if if he didn't gas out, he would have this, he would have that. Then we're going to have these silly debates on Twitter. And it's going to be a waste of time for, time for everybody because pace is important. And it's a, it's a part of, hey, it's a part of, it's a part of fighting. Um, and if, if you can beat someone better than you because you gassed them out, then good. Like, yeah, you wouldn't want to fight them in an alley locked or locked in, locked in, uh, I guess, I guess you are locked in a cage, really. <laughs> Forget that analogy. But, um, with rounds and with everything else, if you can if you can navigate the system that's in place with the rules, then you know you do your best in a five round fight to create some fatigue, persevere, and and win. That's your job. And I think showing that kind of haste and a break in form is pretty telling for Hamza. And there's some some very durable guys. Like there's no reason why Covington should ever beat him. But he might beat Hamzat um, if it goes past three. Maybe even after taking the worst beating over three rounds, just to come back in rounds four and five and just overwhelm him with volume. Because like, I, I really thought Hamzat might pass out from exhaustion. Actually, that feeds into my next question. Who are people you think that Chimaev should avoid in the meantime as he develops? Uh, so the, the Covington one is an interesting one because he very well could punch Covington's head, head into the bleachers because Covington gets hit a lot. But at the same time, if he can't, then anything past three, I think we know. And even if he fights the way he did in that third round, uh, Covington's gas tank is just fucking amazing, really. So that's an interesting juxtaposition in styles and ability. Same with like Usman's cardio machine, too. You're going to want to stay away from that. So. And these are both guys that have some wrestling chops too. So if your cardio is a little bit iffy because you're a little bit over-aggressive, by a little bit, I mean a fuck ton over-aggressive when you fight, then uh, you might want to get that under control and develop a more, a little more strategy, composure, and some poise so that so that you don't gas yourself out. And these, these folks that have been fighting five rounds multiple times who understand how to play how it plays out um at at the championship level going going five rounds you know they can understand understand pace they understand um like breathing staying composed to to rest and recovery things like that not everything can be a fastball or else you're going to get fucking tired or timed and so those those two would be be first and foremost um, and another one that I'm going to say, and everyone's going to say, no, he'd out wrestle him in a second is Luke. Luke, Luke's left hook would, would drop Hamza if he went wild and lunged in. And, and if he tried to fight Southpaw, then he would get laced with a straight right. Um, cause, cause Hamza doesn't have defense there. Would he possibly, and maybe probably, uh, take Luke and like throw him to the ground? I used to think that, <laughs> and Luke started fucking darsing everybody, so I don't know anymore. <laughs> Actually, that's another good segue, because now we're going to talk about Vicente Luque versus Bilal Muhammad too. They first fought back in 2016, where Luque knocked Muhammad out in just over a minute. Jason, how are they different from back then? The, I think there was, what, one fight 
between the Alan Joban fight where uh, where Muhammad lost, and then and he won one, and then he caught Luke and Luke beat him in a minute something with the, the the what might be the prettiest left hook in MMA history. Now he's got I don't know five, six, seven wins in a row, or he hasn't lost in seven straight fights other than the, the eye poke that's a no contest. He lost to uh, Jeff Neal by decision when Jeff Neal was on his way up. Okay. Yeah, and Neal was, was doing very well back then. And momentum's a hell of a thing. And the, a win over Stephen Thompson is a, is a pretty impressive feather in your cap. Uh, having like a pressure-heavy grappling style and beating Damian Maya, even though, though Maya's 1,000 years old, that's still pretty <laughs> impressive too. He beat Lyman Good. And Lyman Good is also what I what I have been told one of the strongest people in all of mixed martial arts, pound for pound, and that tells you how strong Bilal is because he's Bilal's strong. He didn't he wasn't getting muscled around by Good at all. So I think momentum is a hell of a thing, um, and that's that's saying something. I mean, you can do the MMA math and you can say he looked uh, really good against Stephen Thompson, whereas uh, whereas Vincente Luque didn't quite have as uh have as good of a, a good of a fight but styles make fights and steven thompson doesn't doesn't have the same sort of pressure and conventional attacks that uh that luke has how do you see this fight play out i see some some good forward pressure from Bilal because that's what he's been doing and it's been working right but I also see this fight ending possibly by the prettiest three-two you've ever seen thrown in MMA, um, because he's the, the he's gonna be waiting for that left hook. But the two that's going to be following is probably gonna is probably the one's gonna seal the deal. There's one person who's I I just I could never see getting in their face, and that is Vincente Luque. Like he lands that shit over and over and over. You get his grill, he's gonna put you out. That's that's how I see it. Or I mean, obviously, um, Blau is really strong. He's taking everybody down. His cardio is just fantastic, and his striking has improved. It it really has. I think a lot of the improvement isn't like discipline technique. I think he's just trickier, right? I think there's an MMA shortcut to being an effective striker, which is just to be confusing. So I think Muhammad has taken that shortcut where instead of improving all the fundamentals. Now he fights from both sides. He mixes in the wrestling, which is actually a very good thing to do when you're a striker. And also he punches and kicks. Yeah. And what I've noticed from, uh, from Bilal is that, and this is just from like the Twitter, the tweets that come into my Twitter feed every now and again, is he has some real poignant shit. If it's coming from him directly, he's one of the better intellectual thinkers in mixed martial arts. Like he sees some things. And, and that, that can go a long way, especially when you're strong and you have good cardio. Actually, he started doing more fight analysis and doing some desk work. Okay. Yeah, he seems like a, a very cerebral guy. And that, that's why this fight interests me so much. Because if he comes at it with what's working, it, it, what's the adage? If it's not broke, don't fix it. But I don't think you just try to, to come out with pressure and get in um, Luke's grill. But at the same time, you're going to fight him at distance the entire time? No, you're not going to do that. You're going to engage into a kickboxing bout? You're not going to do that. Being able to mix in both 
and being intelligent about it. It might make it a little bit boring at times, especially if uh, if Luke's takedown defense holds up. But hey, it, it's about winning, you know? and, and their camp probably has an approach that is really winning based. I would think against a guy that knocked him out in a minute, fifteen seconds, or whatever it was last time. Which usually doesn't end that quickly in an exchange because people don't have that accurate of a punch in an exchange, right? That's why you could get away with that. Except Luke, no. Like if you get in an exchange with him, he will have pinpoint accuracy with that hook. He's such a beautiful puncher. It really is. It's outstanding. And to, to do that in MMA is very difficult because you have to be cognizant of so many different variables and so many different attacks. High, low, I mean, wrestling, kicks, punches, everything coming at you. And to do that, it takes vision, it takes reaction time, it takes composure, it takes discipline. Um, there's so many different things, and he does it. He does it very, very well. But on the flip side of that, not even the flip. I guess the flip side, if you consider grappling, the flip side. But he darsed fucking Michael Chiesa. Michael Chiesa is a phenomenal grappler. He's incredibly strong at 170 pounds. He looks good out there. Uh, Luke is certainly not the same fighter that fought fucking Mike Perry to a split decision. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting better and better and better. Since Muhammad is the one who lost last time. What does he need to do this time around to beat Luke? He needs to mix it up. Um, he can't just go super wrestling heavy unless he does mix it up and then he goes super, and he wrestles and he realizes it's very easy for him and hell stick with it. Um, but I don't, I don't get the sense that that's going to, that's going to work out for him. So um, mix it up. He, you're going to see him probably do some good stuff with cage pressure uh, if he's struggling with the takedown, he might just sort of work position with some inside dirty stuff, elbows, head position, knees to the thighs, probably try to keep it out of range and out of space. Then trying his best to, to like make it a gritty, grimy, not, not, not a knockdown drag out. You don't want that. You don't want that with Vincente Luque. You want to take away some of Luque's tools. And, you know, if it gets a little bit boring, job is to win. The thing about Muhammad is that the reason why he's gotten so far in MMA, even though he's not like one of the most accomplished wrestlers, is because he doesn't seem to get discouraged if he doesn't get a takedown. In fact, he's a wrestler who doesn't seem to care if he gets a takedown or not. He's fine to just use his wrestling to nullify you, push you up against the fence, keep making you worry about the takedown, carry his weight around, because he's not going to get tired. So even against somebody like Stephen Thompson, you know, he wasn't controlling him on the ground like some of the other wrestlers have. But that was fine. He was just clinging on him. You know, it became kind of a boring fight, but he kept edging it out, edging it out, winning every round, right? And so I think that is his strength. He doesn't get discouraged if he doesn't get a takedown. In fact, he doesn't care if he gets a takedown. He uses his wrestling to beat you on points and to nullify a lot of things you do and just get you up in the clinch and get you up against the fence, just pressure you and win the rounds. He does. He does that exceptionally well. And nullifying the, the, uh, your opponent's tools is a big part of this game. And, and he does it so well when he, he, he puts his head underneath your jaw and then just holds that position and he's gripping on your hands. And you hear Joe Rogan talk about how takedown attempts tire the, the wrestler out more than the person defending. Well, that's, Partly true, yes, because you have a cage there most of the time. 
And that's when we're working and the other person's allowed to use that cage and stand or the other person's trying like things like lifts and grips and, and those kinds of things. But when you're working some of that like clearing wrists in the other person is strong and a good wrestler, if you're not naturally a good wrestler, that shit is very, very tiring and fatiguing as well. And so like sometimes Joe Rogan is just missing the point that which which happens quite often. But where you have someone like Blau, though it might be tiring, it's more tiring for the non-natural wrestler who is not just defending takedowns, but also defending positioning. And what Blau will do well is he will, like, if you clear a hand, he'll throw an elbow. If you clear a hand, he'll throw a little punch. And he's, he's maintaining some sort of offense with not just wall install or cage pressure. And sure, it might not be the most dynamic or fan-friendly, but it is incredibly effective. He's kind of a contrast to Chimaev in that Chimaev will get discouraged if he doesn't get a takedown, whereas Muhammad doesn't care. And also, Chimaev, when he goes for a takedown, he really goes for it. Like, he really commits, whereas Muhammad doesn't commit like that. He looks for the takedown. If it's not there, he's not going to tire himself out. He's just going to use it and make you work to get out of it, right? And But if he feels the takedown is there, then he's going to go for it. But he's not emotionally connected to that takedown where he has to get it. If it's there, it's there. If it's not, he's going to just use it to make you tire yourself out. Absolutely. And that, that's a very, very good point. That's an area where a lot of wrestlers in M- MMA have to improve. If if you're lowering your level and you're down at their hips and they dig in an underhook and they pull you up, you got to understand, I think Felder was calling it the other day, there's an elbow there. There's an elbow on the overhook side and they're not doing it. They're fighting through underhooks and tiring themselves out instead of while the other guys re- like counter wrestling, which defensive wrestling is also wrestling. I'll say it again. Defensive wrestling is also wrestling. So when they're counter wrestling or defensively wrestling and trying to pull you up, there are striking opportunities and like abandoning those for a wrestling match that is, that is very fatiguing on you. Fool's errand. There are more tools at your disposal. The more you can use them correctly and the more synergistically you connect the skill sets, the better your chance at winning, better your chance at winning, better your chance at, at, at climbing the ladder and getting a higher ranking. If the goal is world title, then let's do that. But the, uh, I don't know if it's that they're too, they're too eager to, um, to hold on so tightly to their their one specific discipline, but there's there's more to this, and you can do some some pretty cool shit by chaining together wrestling and striking, especially against the cage. You can be you can be a real real fucking headache. I think Muhammad he uses that non-committal wrestling also to get you to counter wrestle him until your arms are fatigued, right, from trying to yank him up trying to pummel things you're not used to. And once your arms are tired, then your striking isn't that much better than his anymore because your hands start falling, right? And that's when Muhammad starts to get more confidence in his hands because he's punching somebody who's already arm weary from all this counter wrestling. And then when it feels like, oh, your arms are starting to recover, he's going to wrestle you again to make your arms weary again so he could start trying to outbox you. And then he's going to throw kicks and fancy kicks and high kicks and kick from both sides because he's not afraid of you trying to take him down, right? In fact, he's wanting you to do that. I think there's like two goals he has when he does that. He kicks you to just get points and just win those rounds, like I said. I don't think he's a fighter who's looking to finish. He just wants to win, right? So he's throwing kicks, hoping that you'll try to do something to try to engage him, which can open up the wrestling or grappling. 
But also, he's hoping that once he starts kicking you, you'll kick him back. And once you start trying to kick him, then he's going to take you down. So there's a lot of little clever things that aren't exciting, per se. That's the other thing about Muhammad is he does all these things that are not exciting that keeps getting him closer to that goal of winning the round. Yeah, and, that, and that's what he is. He's a winner, right? He's, I think he's 20-3 and three with one no contest. So he, and he doesn't have a ton of knockout power. He doesn't. I mean, how many KOs does he have in his career? And I think most of those are before he got to the UFC. So when when he's uh, up the competition, I don't know. Does he have? Does he have any? I mean, I guess one, maybe. So he plays to his strength, and you hear me say that all the time. Play to your strength. It's about winning. And it, he gets. He looks like his striking is on par with uh, some of the better strikers he's in there with because he's able to level the playing field for the reasons you just explained. He can make and tax your your energy systems. He can wear you wear you down. He can make your arms arm weary and heavy. That kind of shit. He gets it. And hey, if you're not a knockout puncher and these guys aren't that submittable, how else are you going to win? And he finds a, he finds a way to do it. He finds a way to do it. And and I like him for it. I won't fault him for it. Now I respect the man for it. You know what's funny is he's a young guy, but he has a crafty veteran style already, right? Which actually goes a long way to further his career with this style. He could fight like that for a very long time. Yeah. You're never saying, oh my God, Bilal Muhammad was in a war, right? He's in a lot of decisions and he wins most of those decisions without getting dragged into a war. So, so I imagine that the other corner uh, during the round coaching against Bilal is doing a lot of Come on, ref. He's got to do something from that position. Come on, ref. <laughs> Separate him. Like that's what's going on. That's because like, it's frustrating because he's he's got these big goddamn wrists. He just looks like he's, he's very strong. So he's holding that position, and the other guy is working to to move. And every time he pulls you up, he's dropping. You pull him up, he's dropping back down, or he's throwing little shots. And you can't peel him off, and it's a pain in the ass. But hey, he's he's in these three rounders because they don't feel he's main event worthy yet. So while he's there. You know he's banking at least one round with heavy wrestling pressure. And if you can't get to that chin like Luke A was able to, then, you know, there's only been one person who's been able to, to to finish him, and that's been Luke A. So if you can't do it, and it's only been done once over 22 fights, you better be prepared to have an answer for that kind of workmanlike grinding style. And if you don't, well, then you're going to lose a decision because there are rules in this game. and you use them to your advantage to win. And if you don't, well, then you're dumb because you get paid twice as much when you win. So I don't understand any argument for trying to do anything else other than that. So this is going to be a good fight. I think a lot of people are going to be sleeping on it, but it's two very different type of fighters who are both very crafty and smart, but in two different ways. And another wrinkle about them is now that they've developed and gotten older, Muhammad is willing to trade and throw strikes. And now Luke is willing to go for takedowns and submissions. So they're much more well-rounded than the first time around. Absolutely. They've evolved. They've both evolved. And I know that, uh, I know that the Dars has always been in Luke A's repertoire, but I mean, he's pulling that off against Michael Chiesa. I think he caught Tyron Woodley with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Woodley's a big, strong wrestler who's I'm sure he's not used to giving up the, the three-quarter Nelson position and the, that bolt cutter position. Very physically strong, so it tells you what what Luke has been able to do um, from a grappling perspective. He's improved that, and 
You know, it's it's part of his arsenal. And if if he's been able to continuously improve that game, well, like like we said before, his stand up is very very pretty. His striking is very precise, and uh, he's a good decision maker in the pocket. So I think uh, I think it's going to make for an interesting fight. And if it's boring and Bilal Muhammad wins after getting knocked uh, into the stratosphere the first time they fought, then congratulations to Bilal Muhammad. I mean, that's his job. That's his job is to win. It's to win. And when you have someone that, that, that beat your ass so handily the time before, if you have the, the concentration, if you have the, the presence of mind, if you have the cardio, and you have the will to get back in there, and you can turn that into a victory, that's pretty impressive from a fighting perspective. And if you don't understand that, well, all you know is just bleep bullshit. You don't understand actual fighting. Here's another interesting thing. Luke, I think, has around eight submissions by either guillotine choke, Dars, anaconda choke, and also head and arm choke. So basically, anytime you're in that front tie-up, you know, because all of those chokes are similar in that they're variations of a head and arm choke. All, all front headlock attacks, right? Or front head attacks at some level. Yep. And you know, Muhammad is going to be shooting. So that's another extra added wrinkle. Yeah. He's got the, he got the, the, the antidote for the, the heavy wrestling attacks. He basically is good at one type of submission and it's the wrestler killer. Yeah. That's it. You hit it one side, he's going to go Dars. You pull it down, he's going to go Anaconda the other. You can switch back and forth. Um, if you turn and face while he's trying to take the bag, he hits you with a guillotine. That, that's you know, as long as you're good at keeping your hips back and you don't you don't give up your hips when you overcommit the punches, which he doesn't do. That's why it's hard for me to to pick against him this time around. They both also have excellent cardio, so I think this might be a fight that ends up being fun to watch if it goes to decision, just because of their styles and their cardio. Yeah, and even if it's not super entertaining, it'll probably be a good teachable fight for for fighters and coaches if you want something that focuses on fundamentals and clean technique, a lack of unforced errors, if you will. So sometimes, sometimes whether or not it's incredibly exciting, there is value in that. Yep, yep. All right, that's all the time we have for this episode. Make sure you support us on Patreon. Leave us a positive review. Shout out to Coach Zach Goldrosen. I'll leave his Twitter link in the show notes if you want to yell at him. <laughs> oh, man. Otherwise, catch you all next time. All right, folks.